You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. The inside word on all things travel. Buckle up as we explore New Zealand, take you abroad, dive into virtual travel, and inspire your bucket list with spectacular tips and tricks. We've got the world covered. Tune in on Apple's podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to like and share our podcast so everyone can enjoy the inside word on all things travel. And now, here's your host from Christchurch, New Zealand, Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch. G'day there. Welcome aboard another fresh edition of Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Chris Lynch. And I'm Mike Yardley, feeling somewhat liberated with Mm. the arrival of Level 2 in our COVID management plan, which of course, Chris, is allowing domestic tourism in New Zealand to reopen, and we're ripping into it. Yes, and I can finally see your pretty face again in your lounge, as opposed to doing it on, uh, well, what did we do? Zoom and various different um, Uh, apparatus? Yes, we went on a technology called Squadcast. It was very good. It wasn't too bad. It was good. I could still see you. Yes. And poor faces. Yes, you did. And uh, hopefully uh, the producers didn't see that though. I wonder if they just saw that or got the audio version. We well, must ask. We must. There could I be mean, a secret vault of all of your <laughs> stupid faces being yes. pulled. Yes. yes. In this episode though, first up we want to discuss the mighty Clutha River, which is New Zealand's second longest river after the Waikato, the longest in the South Island, and it boasts the highest volume of any river in New Zealand, making it very fast flowing. I love a good gushing river, Mike. It is a real gusher. And I thought we'd start our spotlight on New Zealand tourism with a place that traditionally has been under touristed as opposed to the big jewels like Queenstown and Rotorua. And yeah, in comparison to the Waikato River in the North Island, uh, the Clutha carries nearly twice the volume of the Waikato, so it is an absolute gusher, Chris. Mm. Uh, And it's very mesmerising as well. Any part of the river you go to, uh, it's just extraordinary. It's incredible to look at, isn't it? A good gushing river. Yeah, it's got that fabulous sort of swirling water effect, Mm -hmm. uh, like a whirlpool all the way along the river. And uh, it does run from Lake Wanaka through central Otago before finally spilling uh, into the Pacific Ocean south of Balclutha at the very bottom of New Zealand. So she's a massive river. Um, And it's such a wonderful river to track or to shadow, um, you'll often come across it if you're, for example, holidaying in Wanaka or calling into Cromwell or obviously en route to Queenstown. You'll see the Clutha yeah. up that northern end. And if you decide to head south and shallow and uh, shadow, sorry, the river's passage, yeah. uh, there's so much more to see. It's beautiful around that area. It is absolute heartland New Zealand and mm-hmm. the Clutha Uh, encompasses a swag of some really evocative tourist gems, sort of treasure chest places. Um, Obviously, Clyde is quite well known, but then you've got lesser known destinations like Roxburgh. And uh, earlier this year, I rolled through central Otago all the way down to Roxburgh. Um, Clyde is a really good starting point. And then just 10 minutes drive from Clyde, uh, you can get uh, to some other amazing little places in the Maniatoto district of central Otago, like Ofa, uh, which people doing the uh, 
Otago Central Rail Trail will uh, will call into Ofa. And they're like gold rush towns, really sweet, lost-in-time towns. Clyde, though, is a star. The heart of town of Clyde is Sunderland Street, and it is like a movie set. Um, It's just got so so many magnificent restored uh, buildings like the Hartley Arms Hotel, the Dunstan Hotel. Um, And then if you're after a bit of hospitality, Oliver's Restaurant uh, on the main street was established and operated for 20 years by Fleur Sullivan, who a lot of people will know uh, and has become synonymous with Fleur's place in Moiraki, just by the boulders. So, yeah, Oliver's Restaurant, fabulous place for dinner. Um, And as I mentioned, uh, yeah, the Otago Central Rail Trail, Clyde is the start or the finish line of that great ride, depending which way you're going. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And there are lots of wonderful cycle trails that you can follow. And these are the best place for the cycle lanes, the cycle trails. Absolutely. In this part of New Zealand, Mike. Well, you're off-road, so you're not annoying motorists. For <laughs> That's starters, right. Chris. And you don't have your wee camera on your helmet to, you don't need that. to wait for the conflict. That's quite right. <laughs> um, and the Otago Central Rail Trail has now been joined by a supporting cast of smaller trails, which are more focused on tracing the Clutha River. So, for example, there is the Roxburgh Gorge Trail, which is a one-day trip. It's about 34k in length, and that takes you from Alexandra to the Roxburgh Dam. The latest kit on the block is the Clutha Gold Trail. It opened about four years ago. It's about 70k in uh, length, so you'll probably want to do it over two or three days. And the really good thing about the Clutha Gold Trail is, as the name suggests, it actually takes you all the way down to the historic mining town of Lawrence, and it was nearby Lawrence at Gabriel's Gully that the Otago Gold Rush was born way back in 1861. The other thing, Chris, is that aside from being on bike, if you actually wanted to um, explore these trails by foot, you can. Yeah. And you're just immersed in the central Otago heartland with all of that mining legacy. Um, and if the trail sounds like too much of a hard slog, whether you're doing it by foot or pedal, car or pedal, yeah, dirty absolutely. Go by car, just hopscotch your way around these wonderful attractions. And you headed south to Roxburgh, right? I am in love with Roxburgh. I reckon it's one of New Zealand's most underrated towns. Now, why do you say that? Because I've heard that before. There are so many sweet little attractions and temptations about the town. I think, first of all, it's the setting and it's the scenery. So if you're heading south on State Highway 8 from Alexandra, you're following the Clutha River, and either side of you, you've got this undulating landscape of tussock-clad hills and those fabulous natural schist sculptures called tors, rock tors. And these are like towers of schist, sort of stacked as high as 20 metres in the air. And they, they sort of like, um, sort of... Uh, Mother Nature's own sculptures. They're just so whimsical. Um, And then once you get close to Roxburgh, you've just got this patchwork of fruit orchards unfurling across the valley. Uh, And um, it really is um, a star small town. Very um, underrated and lesser trafficked than the likes of, say, Clyde or Mm. Cromwell. Is there a bit of a Scottish flavour to the town? Definitely. And you'll notice that with the street names. Yeah. uh, You'll find yourself 
just sighing an admiration at uh, the stone houses and the cottages mm. that line these streets. A lot of them are made out of mud brick and schist, mm. um, uh, really well maintained, and they're all backed by Nobby Range, which is, you know, the main sort of landmark backdropping Roxburgh. Um, so it's a really soothing landscape. But, yeah, history just pours from um, every crevice of Roxburgh. A great little introductory is to do the Town and River Track. It's just a really easy 5K loop. You can nail it in 90 minutes, and it weaves its way along the banks of the Clutha in Roxburgh and laces together a lot of the, the heart-stealing cottages and all of that Scottish heritage, particularly on Scotland Street, which is the best street in town. There are lots of quirky attractions to this place as well, and not just the the beautiful cottages uh, that are made of stone fruit and stone cottages, but Mm. the legendary Jimmy's Pies. Yes. And they were a very recent award winner. In the New Zealand Pie Awards. Please um, tell me it was just a decent steak and cheese and, and, <laughs> and not this vegan uh, oh, sun-dried tomato baked banana something or yes, other pie. You with know? a bit of soy in it. Or, oh. Yeah, I know. Just give me a pie. <laughs> they do the works. They, they go right across the whole pie spectrum. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but Jimmy's is truly a legend in pastry. They've been making meat pies for almost 50 years in Roxburgh at Jimmy's Pie Shop. They actually have 20 different types of pies now. Um, and there are also the sweet treats like the cream buns, which seriously are like the size of a basketball. <laughs> um, the Heart Foundation would be horrified. But it's the power of Jimmy's Pies that really is the star attraction. In Little Roxburgh, in their shop in Scotland Street, they make over 25,000 pies a day. A day? A day. That's well, I thought you were going to say a year at least. <laughs> I know. For, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many people offhand live in Roxburgh, but it would probably be you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand. It's just crazy how popular their pies are. The other really cool um, attraction right across the road from Jimmy's Pies is their cinema. Now, you might say, well, so what? The thing about the Roxburgh Cinema is it's reputedly New Zealand's oldest operating cinema. Um, It opened in 1897, still going strong. So it just is another reminder, I think, about how there are so many really cool gems to discover in less discovered Roxburgh. Well, Mike and I, we have both really enjoyed road trips across to Hokitika and the west coast of New Zealand and South Island. For those unfamiliar with the layout, Hokitika is about, uh, I'd say, a three-hour drive from Christchurch. And once you are there, it feels touristy, but it's never too busy, is it, Mike? It's never too busy. It's just right. That is true, Chris, and you've got room to roam. If you were taking the road trip from Christchurch, uh, yeah, I mean, three hours across the Alps, and of course, that's a magnificent drive in itself to get through over the main divide. Mm. Um, You may want to stop in that town of Kumara, which a lot of people will know from the coast to coast because that is, you know, the starting gate as such Mm. for the coast to coast race. Um, And before I headed down on my last trip to Hokitika, I headed north from 
the Kamara Junction to just south of Greymouth to Shantytown, which is a faithfully recreated 1860s gold mining town. Really good if you are travelling with a family. Kids yeah, love the place. they do. It really is a family atmosphere. It is. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I think I probably would have enjoyed it more when I was a child than mm. I would now. Mm. But if you've got kids, for example, who like really hands-on activities, like, you know, uh, gold panning. Yeah. Yep. Uh, even saw milling, they can give it a go. Um, so, yeah, it's a, and they've also got miniature train rides, you know, for something a bit more leisurely. So um, that would be my first stop. Mm. And from my recollection, it's quite reasonably priced. It's not an overpriced that's tourist true. attraction. And yeah. the coasters know how to put on a, something quite special that's always going to be quite memorable. Absolutely, yeah. I think it has been a perennial New Zealand family favourite, Chris. Mm. And uh, heading just south of Hokitika, Ross is a great old uh, gold rush settlement to check out. Why? Because it just feels so quintessential Kiwi, doesn't it? It yeah. reminds you of some of those postcards you'd see in the 80s, and, I'm, and yes. I mean that affectionately. Yes, very much so. And once again, it's got all that gold mining history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do love their main pub, the Empire Hotel. It's over 150 years old, although the current building you see, and it's sort of like mustard and green from memory, uh, that was built in about 1908. But it's one of those... True quintessential, gnarly, gritty West Coast pubs. You'll meet all sorts of local personalities inside that pub. And, of course, if you like your white bait fritters, they take top slot on the menu. I want to talk about uh, the treetop walk, which is, um, well, they say it's sort of hocker ticker, but not really, is it? What did you make of it? Because I'm on the, um, well, I enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. I think because I went on a drear, dreary kind of overcast day, I didn't enjoy it as much as I was expecting. Yep. Yep, no, that's fair enough. I mean, I liked the experience of essentially walking through or just above the canopy of a lot of native trees. And I'm a bit of a train spotter, Chris, in that when I hear native birdies, I want to know who they are. What sort of bird is it? You know, are you a bellbird? Are you a, um, a tui? What are you? Who are you? And it's the same with trees for me. So when I was walking along the elevated steel walkways. You branched out. <laughs> I branched out. Well done. Um, at Treetops Walk. And you'll look down and you'll see all of these different native trees. Mm. And they're all brilliantly signposted as such. So you can work out and see for yourself close up in the flesh what does a Rimu look like? What does a Kamahi look like? What does a Matai look like? So I actually really enjoyed it. Oh, you that. can actually see that. I so am a train spotter. Oh, you see, because I was there and I didn't see that. No. You clearly went in a bad mood, I think, Chris. <laughs> no, um, the weather was, it was a bit drizzly. But you know well, what, they actually did provide free umbrellas from my they recollection. Do? Yes. They do. And mm. yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I think some of um, the West Coast's best attractions probably do take on sort of next level beauty on a sunny day. Yeah. And from that treetop walkway, uh, on a sunny, clear day, you do have that magnificent backdrop of the Southern Alps uh, right behind you. Uh, um, you know, sort of, they're like a spine mm. stretching across Westland. Yeah. Speaking of uh, something do you definitely see, I think, on a sunny day, and I've seen it both on a sunny day and yes. a drizzly day, has got to be the Hokitika Gorge. It is yeah. absolutely spectacular. On a bright blue sunny day, the reflection of the sky on that gorge on the water is, yeah. it's a f- world-class attraction on its own. It, it really is. is. 
That's very true. And um, I have been there on various occasions where it can look like a completely different setting. Mm. Last time I was there was earlier this year, and there had been huge rain, torrential rain, West Coast style, um, in the couple of days prior to me arriving there. So even though it was sunny at Hokitika Gorge, the water was uh, very grey. Mm. And I know this may sound weird, but it looked vivid grey. Mm. So because it was bright sunshine, a big bluebird day, you know, the sun was doing its best to accentuate the water, but it was just full of silt from mm. the mountains. So, yeah, you really want the optimum is to have a couple of dry days before you arrive and a beautiful blue sky day when you go to the gorge. If you get that, you've struck the jackpot. Yes, of course, because when it rains on the West Coast, it really does rain. Certainly. But it's a bit of a myth, though. That, you know, a lot of people say that the West Coast always rains constantly. It doesn't. It's just that when it rains, it is really, really heavy. I mean, I yeah. lived in Greymouth yeah. up the road for about, well, nearly two years. Loved yep. it. Yes. And I actually loved the heavy rain. It's something you don't see anywhere else in New Zealand but the West Coast. That's true. Yeah. By the way, because the Hokitika Gorge, as the name would suggest, is only about a 30-minute drive from Hokitika, what I would suggest you do if you are planning a, a road trip in this part of the world is um, just bear in mind that the gorge is not actually that far away if you're basing yourself in Hokitika. So if it's a crappy day on day one, don't go to the gorge and hope for the best for day two or day three. But, mm. you know, most people who would go to Hokitika or that sort of general Westland area would probably be looking at hanging around in that area mm. for several days. So hopefully you'll get that bluebird day and just, you know, see the gorge at its absolute finest. Now, did you venture out to Lake Canary? Yeah, it's very close to Hokitika Gorge. You can actually do a, um, a magnificent sort of circuit from Hokitika out to Treetop Walk then to Hokitika Gorge, and then follow the signposts around the back of Lake Canary, call into Dorothy Falls, which is right on the roadside at the back of Lake Canary. That waterfall is like a fire hydrant. Mm, it is it's a, a gusher, cracker. isn't it? It's another gusher. This is the gusher episode of Kiwi Tripsters. <laughs> um, and then Lake Canary, absolutely beautiful. Um, and then uh, then you can, yeah, complete your circuit back to Hokitika. And once you're back in Hokitika, you've got to check out, um, well, it's a beach. It's an interesting beach. It's not a beach you want to go surfing or swimming in. Yes, but uh, I would say the West Coast has the most amazing sunsets and mm -hmm. when you take your photo with your cell phone you'll be able to take some beautiful almost shadow images of the driftwood sculptures I love them uh, they're great eh? and mm. I don't know they must be done by locals but there's always different sort of sculptures popping up and if yep. you go I reckon the best time is probably sunset yep and it's just incredible. And no matter what kind of photographer you are, you look like a professional yep. once you've taken photos of that driftwood. Absolutely. You cannot take a bad photo there, I believe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that driftwood, it sort of serves like a silhouette against yeah. the sunset. I was trying to think of that. And I said shadow. I was thinking of shadow puppets. <laughs> <laughs> but the amazing thing is, like, they'll have this big uh, driftwood festival in oh, they do too. January, don't That's right. they? Yeah. So anytime after January, if you're heading there, the driftwood sculptures last um, a long time, mm. despite the the storms and the tempests from the Tasman. So yeah, you'll get a fresh crop of driftwood sculptures in January, and then you can explore them uh, throughout the year. But I just think the the creativity in some of them are just amazing. I love the ones that sort of resemble teepees. 
um, yes. you know, sort of Native yeah. American Indian teepees. Yeah, I they're love cool. those. Yeah. And accommodation too on the West Coast, uh, and particularly around Hokitika, it's worth looking out for. There's some beautiful yep. lodges that are not as expensive as you might think. Yes. You might have to drive in your car for maybe an extra half hour inland, but there's some lovely wee lodges and sort of B&Bs yeah. that are worth considering as opposed to looking just inside the town. Well, I think um, a growing trend in New Zealand is for families to take their dogs with them on holiday. That's true. Particularly on road trips. Mm-hmm. Now, last time I went to Hokitika, I actually went with my parents and their two dogs, and we stayed at a place called Shining Star Beachfront Accommodation in Hokitika, which, as the name suggests, is absolute beachfront. It was like a one-minute walk from our chalet onto the beach to look at the, the, the driftwood and the sunset. It's right across the road from that glowworm dell where oh, you can go see the glowworms. Another yeah. free attraction late at night time. Exactly. Don't turn your cell phone on because you get shouted at. That's very true. But I mean, that, that, that place we stayed at, Shining Star Beachfront Accommodation, I know this is sounding like a shameless plug, um, that was only from memory about 150 bucks mm. a night. So that was for the three of us and two yep. dogs in the peak tourism season. So you will find bargains on the West Coast. You know, if you're fretting about the cost of domestic Mm. tourism in New Zealand, um, it doesn't have to be that way everywhere. No, it doesn't. Coming up, let's indulge in some South African bucket list streaming. Plus, we'll take a wander through some of Europe's best virtual museum experiences. Radio across Europe we go, and many blue ribbon destinations tout their museums as you know something to go see and have a look at. But it's a bit difficult to go overseas at the moment, Mike, isn't it? Indeed. And uh, I like what we've done here. Collated some of the stuff that you can see virtually. Some of the best museums, I believe, across Europe. And uh, well, go for it because you love your museums. I do. I don't know where we can start here. Probably the British Museum because that's the big boy on the block, Chris. And they have gone really virtual with their offerings. I thought you were going to say really vicious. <laughs> Well, actually, in the eyes of some, they probably are quite vicious because they were very sort of imperial in terms of helping themselves to other people's loot and taking it home to Blighty. (laughs) Yes. Um, Hence why the British Museum is billed as the Museum of the World. Uh, It is quite incredible, though, its history. It first opened back in 1769. So while James Cook was having a nosy around our fair land, the British Museum was opening to the public. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And to think that was a museum then. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. Um, there are four million treasures on virtual display. If you go to the British Museum's website, uh, the online navigation guide that they've created is really cool. It's, it's quite trippy. They've sort of designed it like a guitar fretboard. So you've got like all these... Um, diagonals lines mm. running across the screen and they are basically spanning the century so it's all like um, divided into time zones as such. Oh. Um, so you can span the centuries, all sorts of different subject areas, all sorts of geographic areas to dive into. You could lose yourself in their virtual vaults mm. for days. And for Greeks, the most visited exhibit at the British Museum is to see the Parthenon frieze, a.k.a. Elgin's marbles, <laughs> which were spirited from Athens, the Acropolis in Athens, back to Blighty 200 years ago. Basically, they were flogged when the city was under 
Ottoman Empire control. These are the sorts of museums you have to see if you've got a laptop or a desktop computer on your cell phone. No, it good. doesn't do it justice. It exactly. doesn't. Speaking of the Acropolis Museum, yeah. that too has gone viral in terms of virtual reality in some respects. You can look at it online now too. Yeah, no, they've done a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. And inside the museum, I love how when you do the virtual tour, um, you'll sort of virtually walk along the galleries and in hopeful anticipation that one day the Parthenon freeze will be returned home. <laughs> They've left this area vacant for its hopeful return. Um, so they live in hope. Actually, interestingly, back in February, the European Parliament was drawing up legislation that would force Britain to hand over the Elgin marbles to Greece as part of the Brexit settlement. So whether that actually transpires <laughs> well, or not, we, we wait and see. Um, but yeah, the Acropolis Museum Interactive Virtual Tour is a really intimate encounter with their antiquities, which, you know, go back five, 6,000 years. And the museum is situated at the foot of Acropolis Hill, so they've got some awesome live cams that are trained on mm. All of those ancient temples that are pepper potted around. Um, what they've done is the they turned on the CCTV cameras and said, "Here you go, have a look." Yeah. But what is incredible about this, though, some of the museums I was looking at uh, the other day, is that even though you can look at these online, there's still museums I'd want to experience in the flesh as well. It, it sure. doesn't detract from that. What do you think? Yeah, it's I true. still want to go. I still want to have a look at these. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I really like about some of these virtual encounters is take somewhere like the Louvre in Paris, right now. First artwork you probably would associate with the Louvre would be Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci. When you go there in person, normally you are fighting to actually get a glimpse of that artwork amongst, you know, a sea of selfie sticks, although they have banned those now, thank God. Good. But you've just got this crowd crush all around, quite a small painting. So... It doesn't really feel that special in that throng of humanity that's all clambering for a good look. When you do the virtual tour, I actually think it helps accentuate the appreciation for what an amazing masterpiece it is. Mm. And uh, I think that applies to a lot of artworks at places like the Louvre. I actually find, yeah, that the Louvre Museum's online galleries and their virtual tours really good. Um, And another really cool museum to check out virtually as well, uh, is Musée d'Orsay. And it's actually housed in a decommissioned 19th century railway station. So if you like impressionist works, you know, we're talking sort of Monet here, Cezanne, Renoir, Gauguin, um, you can take a virtual muse of all of this amazing impressionist artwork um, at uh, Musée d'Orsay. And there is also just one other quick note about Paris, Uh, They've got an amazing virtual reality tour down the catacombs of Paris, which is sort of like the ancient uh, tombs and cemeteries of Paris. What about Amsterdam? One of my all-time favourite museums, Chris, is the Van Gogh Museum, uh, which boasts the largest stash of his artworks. And once again, the virtual tour pretty much replicates what you can see in person in Amsterdam. The amazing thing about that museum and, the, and Vincent van Gogh himself, is that his paintings are displayed um, very much in sequence with how his life unfolded. And it became darker and darker because his mental battles intensified. And you see that in his paintings as you go from one painting to the next, just how the mood is getting darker, everything's getting more negative. It's quite profound. Um, also, quickly, in Amsterdam and Frank House, which a lot of people love. If you go to the Oculus store, 
download the free app for the immersive virtual reality tour of Anne Frank House. Ooh. And honestly, you will feel like you are there. It is chilling. Wow. I'll have to do that. But yeah, that would be quite chilling. Mm. Um, anything to note from Italy? Uh, well, obviously, you've got a lot of museum and gallery options in Italy. Yes. But uh, when it comes to things virtual for the time being, I reckon their best virtual offering is Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Uh, if you like your Renaissance art, oh my goodness, you are in for overload. Um, and all of the art at Uffizi Gallery in Florence was gifted to the city by their previous rulers, the Medicis. They've got 300,000 works online for you to virtually um, explore. And if you want to go next level, they've got um, an option they call Hypervisions on their website, the Uffizi Gallery website. Uh, Hypervisions gives you sort of like a curated, uh, narrated virtual tour centred around various themes. And it all gets very deep, very fast, Chris. I went for a bit of a roam the other day on the curated virtual tours at uh, Uffizi and ended up exploring angels, epiphany, and intercultural vision. And then my brain started to fade, so yes, I gave up. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, I like to go for something a bit edgier. Uh, yep. You can also do the virtual tour, if you like, of Croatia's Museum of Broken Relationships. Yes. I, th- <laughs> I thought we should mention something a bit out there, and this is different. It's basically a crowd-sourced museum, right? So let's suppose... Based you- on the family court. <laughs> well, let's suppose you break up with your loved one, uh, but you want to either memorialise your pangs of heartache, uh, you want your old flame, the memory of your old flame <sighs> to remain unextinguished. No, I, yes, okay. Well, you can, you can offer an exhibit. You can donate something that memorialises your relationship and how it busted up to this museum. So you've got, you know, romances that have withered to all-out personal tragedy on display in this museum. And it is quite wacky. For example, when you do the virtual tour, you'll see things like a devastating suicide note from somebody's mother displayed next to the toaster someone flogged so their ex could never make toast again. <laughs> it's, it's quite a wild ride at the Museum of Broken Relationships. Yes, I'm trying to think. I'll get to the crust of that at some stage. Thank well you, done. Mike. Finally, on this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, let's indulge in some bucket list travel to South Africa and Cape Town in particular with an eye on wine. Mike, can I be honest with you? When I think of Cape Town, I think dangerous. Well, it's not as dangerous as Johannesburg. Um, when I was planning to go to South Africa last year, I was flying to Joburg and Dangerous Dangerous was flashing in front of me. Really? <laughs> a lot of the time there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with Cape Town, there are some areas of Cape Town that are no-go zones. Uh, the Cape Flats uh, is not um, exactly a crime-free area, put it that way. Uh, but generally, if you stick with the, the tourist areas and keep your wits about you, mm. you will be fine. 
Johannesburg is just overrun with problem areas, particularly downtown. It's just dreadful. Um, okay. But um, so to, this won't be on my bucket list then. <laughs> <laughs> well, to get to the Winelands, <clears throat> which are very, very close to Cape Town, mm. you do actually drive through the Cape Flats areas, and you will see these shanty towns either side of the highway. It's absolutely safe to drive through on the highway. But, yeah, just the grinding poverty you see either side of the highway is absolutely shocking. Mm. And I'm sure if Nelson Mandela was alive today, he would be horrified that his legacy has been trashed. Reminds me of when I went to South Brazil and uh, visited Brazilia, not the nicest looking place. It's all concrete sort of buildings and things, and it looks very first world. Yeah. Uh, And then we were driving to a wee uh, luxurious um, resort in the middle of um, South Brazil. And driving down the highway, the further we drove, the the poorer it looked yep. and got. And it was just very, very sad to think that you've got beautiful, big metropolitan cities. Yes. And then you've got this. Yes. And it's quite hard. It is quite it's jarring. Quite, yeah. It's yeah. very hard to understand that. Absolutely. Um, but well, off we go to have some wine anyway. Well, that's it. Off for some escapist <laughs> wine, Chris. Oh, my goodness. So, but yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's have some wine. Talk to me about wine. Well, the wine country around Cape Town is absolutely spectacular. And, I mean, New Zealand has wonderful wineries, and I'm not trying to downplay the wonders of exploring the wines of New Zealand, but they really do take the hospitality and the architecture to a whole different level in the winelands around Cape Town. Before you hit there, I'll tell you somewhere which is really cool for a quick stop, and I know this may sound strange, but go to Victor Versta Prison. <laughs> because okay. right at the main entrance to the prison uh, is the most magnificent, beautiful, life-size bronze statue of Nelson Mandela himself because it was from that main entrance of the prison that he famously ventured out on his walk to freedom in 1990. And I reckon the, the statue there is the very best Mandela statue you'll see. Um, there's heaps of them around Cape Town, but that is the best of the lot. There's a bit of a backstory when it comes to, the, well, France in some respects yeah. and, and how that plays an influence to a lot of the wine. Yeah, the first wine country town I went to uh, was Franschik. Uh, which is where the French Huguenots arrived in the 1600s. They were fleeing Catholic persecution at the time in France. And they found their way to this town, which is now called Franchic, and they started planting vines all over the region. So they have a lot to answer for. And they settled in the valley, which at the time was known as Elephant's Corner, um, because it was, as the name would suggest, absolutely overrun with elephants. And they would do like an annual migration the elephants, through this valley. Um, Nowadays, it's known as Franchic. Uh, And the town is more like an atmospheric village. Uh, And it's got the most beautifully renovated cottages, amazing landscaped gardens. And when I was there, actually, a local said to me, living in Franchic is like living in a lettuce. It's so lush, so verdant, so fertile. But no drunk elephants? Now, apparently all the settlers sort of gave the elephants the hint that perhaps they needed to find somewhere else okay. on their migration path, yeah. Any standout wineries for you? Well, across the Cape Winelands, you are absolutely spoiled for choice when it comes to showpiece wine estates. And um, they are far more ostentatious than what we see in New Zealand. Mm. They're probably more like the Napa Valley in the US 
than the Gibson Valley in New Zealand. Um, the one I really loved, which I went to, was the was the first one actually, Alley Blue. It's one of the oldest wine farms in the Cape, and this picturesque estate is well known. Uh, for its very fresh and fruity white wines. It's the spicy reds there that I really enjoyed. But they've just got the most beautiful setting uh, with sort of like a tree-shaded terrace overlooking the vineyards. And it's uh, a very sort of undulating countryside. They've got the most dramatic mountains Mm. backdropping the estate. Uh, not dissimilar, I have to say, to the Remarkables of Queenstown. They're called the Drakenstein Mountains. And a bit like the Remarkables in Queenstown, they're all serrated. You know, they've, they've got that sort of mm. real forked, um, sharp, fangy sort of look uh, to the mountains. They're just beautiful. They do good white, I know that much, yep. but their reds, yeah. they're very famous for their reds, aren't they? The reds in that part are of the world. outstanding, absolutely. Cabernet Sauvignon would probably be considered the region's most widely planted grape variety. Um, And it's also blended with Pinotage, which is a South African creation. And it's a crossing between Pinot Noir and Sanso. And it's amazing, when you're talking to South Africans, um, alongside Nelson Mandela, they would probably consider Pinotage as one of South Africa's favourite sons. It is just revered. Pinotage wine. A really good place to um, sample Pinotage is probably the most ridiculously glamorous, glittery wine estate you can imagine. It's called Dahlia Graf, and it is sort of like a combination of high-end art, amazing hospitality, and beautiful wine. It is glamour on steroids, Chris. And Lawrence Graf is the fella behind uh, Graf Diamonds, right? So oh, yes. they've branched out from diamonds into making wine. They've even got a Graf Diamonds boutique gift store at the winery. Yeah, what, what did you buy in the gift shop? shop? Oh, look, you know, just thousands and thousands of South African rand on jewels, Chris. But, yeah, yes. it truly is just – it's sort of like a wine equivalent of a diamond. This place is just sparkly, swanky, <laughs> and the wines are beautiful. You will blow your budget here, though. Delia Graf, it's must-see. All right. And uh, South Africa's most famous wine-producing region is what? Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch. Yeah. So you'll, first of all, want to go to Franschik mm-hmm. uh, and then go to Stellenbosch, which is a bigger town. It's actually, yeah, South Africa's second oldest settlement after Cape Town. Um, magnificent wine estates. A lot of uh, Cape Dutch architecture. So there's a really strong Dutch influence to Stellenbosch. Franschik was French uh, from, you know, uh, in terms of its origins. Um, one of the must-sees in Stellenbosch is their main street called Dorp Street, and it is like a national monument uh, with all of the restored homes, and they've got this really cool trading post in Dorp Street, and excuse my Afrikan, but I think it's pronounced Umsami Sewinkel. I'm glad you said not me, but I think, <laughs> I, I think you might be right. It's got the most amazing stash of tourist catch and then some really authentic Africana um, products. They're really big into their moonshine. So you can try these Africana versions of moonshine um, and they are very potent liqueurs. We are talking <laughs> rocket fuel here, okay. Chris. I think I'll just stick to a lovely red spicy well, it's a, down wine. It is a safer pursuit, yeah. yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, make sure you like us on our Facebook page as well, kiwitripsters.co.nz. You'll find your way there. Uh, also, the show notes are available on the website too. Uh, plus, make sure you rate us. We want you to rate us don't we? and subscribe. Yes, Because then you'll never miss an episode. That is very true. Yes, and you can rate and review us on the podcast service of your choice. In the next episode, we will be continuing our spotlight on New Zealand mm-hmm. with domestic tourism up and running. We'll probably do a bit of uh, more virtual wandering around the world. And uh, to keep the spirit of long-haul travel alive, plenty of bucket list stuff too, Chris. We'll see you then. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Safe travels.